Hey there, and welcome to the Box Office Watch podcast, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. This is the show recapping the weekend of Friday, September 3rd through Labor Day Monday, September 6th, 2021. My name is Paulo, and I'm your host. Man, what a weekend. I'll get into the box office news in a little bit, and there really is only one story to talk about this week, and it's a doozy. Uh, But before we get to that, I'd like to take a minute to zoom out a little bit and talk about why I have a podcast where every week I talk about the box office numbers and, again, how much money movies make and why. From the outside, it seems like a pastime that only spreadsheet-loving geeks would enjoy, which... Granted, I'm not going to deny that I'm a spreadsheet-loving geek. Um, or maybe it's something that, you know, corporate fanboys, you know, want to know about in this late-stage capitalism we're in. Uh, you know, where you're rooting for your company to be the other company making more money. But, you know, I'd like to think there's a greater reason as to why understanding the box office performance of films is worth mine and hopefully your time as well. Um, and let's start by flashing back to August 2018. Now, news on the block was that there would be this new film, Crazy Rich Asians, that was coming out directed by the guy who had directed the Step Up movies and the Justin Bieber documentary. Earlier in the summer, box office pros had forecasted that it would make maybe about $13 million or so for the three-day weekend. After all, August is traditionally known as a dumping ground, so to speak, when studios put out films that they're not confident will do well. And it's that awkward time between summer blockbuster season and the start of school for kids, so audiences are depressed. But there was a murmuring in certain circles if you paid attention. A group of Asian Americans, collectively calling themselves Gold House, were working with a predominantly Asian cast and crew of the film to sponsor theater buyouts across the United States in the hopes to show that Asian Americans were a bankable, movie-going audience, giving giving the film a gold open, so to speak. So, you see, now, the reason for this is the prevailing thought in Hollywood at the time and for decades had been that Asian Americans were just not bankable movie stars. The last major motion picture to feature a predominantly Asian American cast was 1993's Joyla Club, with perhaps the possible exception of Memoirs of a Geisha, but that wasn't even, you know, most, that was mostly international actors and didn't really tell a story about contemporary Asian America. Sure, there are indie hits like Justin Lin's Better Luck Tomorrow, but for the most part, TV and film, uh, Asian Americans were relegated to sidekick roles either as the nerd or a secret kung fu master with very little personality of their own. That was reserved for the main characters. Uh, what more, in cases that were, that where you know the actors could and maybe should have been Asian, they were often whitewashed, such as Scarlett Johansson in Ghost in the Cell or the ill-fated The Last Airbender adaptation. So for Crazy Rich Asians to do well, it would potentially, hopefully, send a signal to Hollywood. And send a signal it did. That weekend, rather than the $13 million that had been forecasted, it made $26.5 million over Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, which, in addition to the Wednesday and Thursday opening previews, totaled $35.2 million. And what's more, on top of a great opening weekend, the film had legs. In its second weekend, it would drop only 6%, and then weekend 3 would drop only 11%. It would go on to make $174 million domestically, with another $63 million abroad for a grand total of $238 million, all on a production budget of $30 million. It would go on to be the highest-grossing romantic comedy of the 2010s, and the sixth-highest-grossing sixth rom-com of all time. 
I was in one of those theater buyout screenings with my Asian Alumni Association uh, that I had mentioned previously on this podcast. And while I could talk about the feeling uh, about my what I thought about the film itself or the electric feeling in the room that, w- that we were making history, what would really happen next is the real story. Seemingly overnight, various projects with Asian and Asian American leads were getting greenlit. Adele Lim, the writer of Crazy Rich Asians, was sought, brought on to write Disney's next animated feature film, Raya and the Last Dragon, set in a world inspired by Southeast Asian culture. Aquafina went on to have her own comedy central sitcom based on her life, as well as star in a film that in 2019 would the hi- have the highest per theater average of the year, Lulu Wang's The Farewell. Always Be My Maybe would come out on Netflix, starring Ali Wong and Randall Park. And Pachinko, novel of author Minzy Lin, Minzy Lee, uh, would receive a series on Apple TV. And even in the most recent Oscar season, we had one of the most diverse from an Asian American front after, you know, the debacle at hashtag Oscar So White, with Minari taking home Best Supporting Actress, uh, The White Tiger getting a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination, and Over the Moon getting a Best uh, Animated Feature nomination. Not to mention, all of this coinciding with a wave of foreign Asian film and culture and music being brought over from Korea and Japan in the form of K-pop, K-dramas, anime, and films like Parasite, which again, won Best Picture. And of course, we got news that Marvel would be fast-tracking their first Asian-American superhero film in December 2018, namely Shang-Chi, after Crazy Rich Asian success. Obviously, not all of this can be attributed 100% to the Crazy Rich Asians, but as you can be damn sure that a good part of it probably was. Uh, and, you know, Hollywood was waking up and seeing that Asian-led projects could in fact be profitable. And now, whether you're happy about it or not, Hollywood is a business, and money is its language. When some concept proves itself to be bankable, studios will follow and replicate it themselves. And while that may seem a bit transactional and reductive of these art pieces we call film, uh, you know, then to have their, their real impact be tied to financial success, I like to think the long-term impact goes beyond lining Disney or Warner's bank accounts. Recently, a mentor of mine from from my college uh, recently told me that he considers American pop culture to be the ultimate export that this country has to offer. For better or worse, the world's created honor screens are what the rest of the world thinks of us, and frankly, they serve as a reflection of what America thinks itself to be, um, and it's why it has so much you know, cultural cachet around the world. Now, as you mentioned before, Asian Americans for decades you know, we didn't have amazing Mozart film with a cast that looked like them. And we were, again, reduced to side, bit sidekick roles with minimal personalization and lazy stereotypes that portrayed us as the model minority or the perpetual foreigners in our own homeland. It dehumanized us to some degree, and, you know, it made, at the very least, it made it easy for our neighbors to think less charitably of us. Of us. This past year and a half has been hard on everyone, from the lockdown to social distancing to losing loved ones. And while I don't want to play the pity party Olympics, uh, Asian Americans have had it especially rough. Even before lockdowns came into effect here in the States, Chinatown and Asian enclaves saw economic hardships as paranoid Americans tried to avoid the so-called Kung Flu or China virus. And while Asian American violence isn't an entirely new thing in the country, uh, which is a whole other podcast in and of itself, the shootings at Atlanta earlier this year, among many other anti-Asian hate attacks in various cities, just go to show that despite what 
progress you know we've seen in you know the last three years of Asian representation in the media since Crazy Rich Asians, we're still up against the legacy and the history uh, that has not seemed fit to include Asian Americans in a starring role in its own pop culture. That is seen us as disposable gooks, as an easy scapegoat, be it now in the age of COVID or back in World War II with Japanese internment, or in 1882 when the Ver- when the Chinese Exclusion Act became the first law about immigration that limited a specific race of people of people to fight the so-called yellow peril. I know that movies in and of themselves can't single-handedly change the tide against the history of racism working against Asian Americans, but it's a start. As a Filipino American, I know Asian Americans can be stars and stars, you know, I see them myself in my own communities and our communities know this. And if we become leads in Hollywood's films and TV shows, the rest of the country and hopefully the rest of the world will also know that Asian Americans are here and just as American as anyone else. And that, you know, we have that main character protagonist energy. And maybe, just maybe, they won't think of us as the other and a would-be racist is stopped from being created. But we'll only be able to get there if we have leading roles in Hollywood. If we, if we, and we'll be able to get to those leading roles in Hollywood if we can prove our money is where our mouth is. As Crazy Rich Asians led to many agents calling up their Asian American clients, you know, pitching them new, new, idea, new pro- projects, I hope that the events of this weekend similarly will have a ripple effect down the line for years to come. And that is why you know, I think it's important to follow the box office because by understanding where, how films are performing, we can see what films will come down the road and hopefully what that says about what we think of ourselves as a culture and as America. Okay, that bit of self-reflection done. That, of course, brings us to this week's Domestic Top 5 and really the main story of this episode, the top film of this weekend. Disney's latest entry to the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, features a cast with Simu Liu, Aquafina, Tony Leung, Misol Yeoh, among others. It's directed and co-written by Japanese-American Destin Daniel Credden and co-written by Chinese-American Dave Callahan, and was forecast by box office pros going into this weekend to open this holiday weekend to about $52 million over the three-day weekend. Some, like Deadline, were lowballing even further, saying it'd be $50 million across the four-day weekend, $90 million globally. Now, this would have been the lowest open in MCU history, behind the Incredible Hulk's $55.4 million back in 2008. And while this would still beat the previous Labor Day weekend record set by 2007's Halloween at $26 million for the three days and $30 million for the four days, as Disney's second post-pandemic film to be a theatrical exclusive release, all eyes were on this film to see if the false slate would remain in place or if fears of the Delta variant were rampant enough and we'd see another exodus of films to 2022. Well, I've buried the lead long enough. Shang-Chi opened this weekend to $75.3 million over the three-day weekend and $94.6 million over the four-day weekend, blowing most of the industry expectations out of the water. It opened in 4,300 theaters for a per theater average of $17,532 over the three days. That is the second highest per theater average behind Black Widow's 80 million three-day opening with a 19.3 per theater average, and ahead of Fast and the Furious 9's 60.7 thousand per theater average. It is also the second highest opening behind Black Widow for the summer post-pandemic and the highest opening of a Labor Day weekend, tripling the previous record of all time. Uh, it's definitely avoiding the lowest MCU open uh, film, uh, 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 infamy, infamy record, uh, which you know still is not bad for a pandemic film, even if it opened still in like the top bottom five or so. 
Now, going into a day-by-day -day breakdown, Thursday night, we saw $8.8 .8 million in Thursday previews, which, when added to actual Friday numbers, has Friday at $29.5 million. This dropped 21% to $23.1 million on Saturday, and then a phenomenal 2% drop from Saturday to Sunday for $22.7 million on Sunday. Monday being a holiday, we saw a 15% drop to $19.2 million for that $94.6 million total of the weekend. Now, for comparison, this uh, 12, 21 to 2 to 15% drop from Friday, Saturday to Sunday compares to the other four-day weekend this summer, Memorial Day, with A Quiet Place 2 dropping 22, 14, 27%, and Cruella dropping 6, 11, 23%. Honestly, it was super fun logging into the box office subreddit each day uh, over the weekend to see how much higher the film's forecast had been versus the day previously, and everyone's reactions that you know just it they were just flabbergasted by how well it was performing. So there was a lot to unpack here. Obviously, this is a surprise to most people, but I think this was this really out of nowhere. Certainly, the film's great reviews helped the film perform great. You know, it had a 92% from critics and 98% on Rotten Tomatoes, as well as an A on CinemaScore and a 71 on Metacritic, as opposed to Black Widow's 79 critics, 91 audience Rotten Tomatoes, A- on CinemaScore, and 67 on Metacritic. Uh, many have said that the trailers probably undersold what the film could have been, uh, and I could certainly see that happening having seen the film myself. Um, so, but again, all of these you know scores came out probably a week before the film. So, you know, uh, while perhaps the fifty million number from uh, Deadline uh, going into the weekend was probably low, people still say you know further back that it would be a fifty million uh, you know a fifty million dollar over the three days. Still, we're underestimating it. So, you know, were those signs? I, I personally think so. Now, putting aside my bias takes as an Asian American, my hopes that they would do well, uh, especially with the theater buyouts that Gold House, again, the same organization that organized for Crazy Rich Asians were organizing, which in turn were inspired by the Black Panther buyouts that various black community groups did to help push that uh, film's legendary run. Um, there were some hard numbers that gave hints. Uh, looking at pre-sales, three days before the weekend, $11 million in pre-sales had been sold, with $7.3 million allocated to opening day, which was about two thirds of Black Widow's opening and a bit more than three three times what Suicide had, had made, which as I quoted on the podcast, would put it in line for more like a 60 million three-day opening and a 70 million dollar four-day weekend. Again, underperforming but not as bad as 50 million dollars. Um, you know, even looking at the first day of uh, pre-sales, um, you know, this was still the second highest pre-sales of the, of the, of the summer um, and, you know, you know was already pacing about 60 million dollars um, based on what Black Widow had ended up doing. Uh, further, if you look beyond just strict box office numbers, there are a lot of factors here, right? You know, again, Asian Americans are the fastest growing ethnicity group in the States. And, you know, a film targeted predominantly at Asian Americans would probably, you know, uh, do pretty well, I would think. Um, Asian Americans are also the most vaccinated group within the United States. Two-thirds have at least one dose in at least 40 states uh, versus only 50% of white Americans. Here in New York City, white vaccination rates of adults are about 59% with one dose versus 90% of Asian American New Yorkers having at least one dose. And among teenagers, ages 13 to 17, almost 100% of Asian American teens have at least one dose, with only 40% of white Americans being in comparison. The logic of this 
this follows then that Asian Americans, who clearly were one of the key target demographics of the film, uh, you know, would feel more comfortable going out to a movie theater again, uh, since premier access was not an option here. In addition, in cities where a vaccine would be required, such as New York or San Francisco, which notably have large Asian populations, not having a vaccine uh, would not be an impediment to these people going to see the film, since again, the majority, the super majority of Asian Americans in these places were already vaccinated. And so what, you know, to these films they did. Asian Americans made generally make up only about 10% or so of a normal MCU film's audience, but for Shang-Chi, they over-indexed at 18%. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, the numbers, total number of admissions stayed the same, and, you know, people from other ethnicity groups left, and, and Asian Americans just made up that difference. Um, rather, what you can assume is that other groups largely stayed the same, and audience total grew by about 8% or so to accommodate for these additional Asian Americans. Uh, one source suggests that, you know, Across the entire United States, uh, 7 million total tickets were sold over the four-day weekend for Shang-Chi, as opposed to Black Widow having $6.5 million and F9's $5.7 million, um, with more tickets going to larger format screens such as IMAX or Dolby, uh, which drove the average ticket price up for Shang-Chi. Now, this is all well and good, you know, for this opening weekend. Uh, you know, things look great. Asian Americans had the moment. They had a, had a big uh, opening weekend. But where does the film go from here? As we know by Black Widow, just because a film has a great opening weekend does not mean it will have the legs. Now, Sanctee's budget is reportedly $200 million. Some people say maybe $150 million, but let's go with a more conservative estimate for now that tends to be in line with most MCU films. In Sanctee's favor, you know, it does not have a premiere access, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, it also has strong word of mouth. Um, anecdotally, I know of multiple people who have already planning their third or even fourth visit to the theaters to see this. And it also has a clear slate, you know, in terms of competition with no major film releases until October. Um, again, more on that later this, at the end of this episode. Uh, with the stellar intro weekend drops, you know, again, sub 25% from Friday to Saturday, you know, very similar drops to what Black, to what Black Panther ended up doing. I wouldn't be surprised to see if this has fairly strong legs. Black Panther, again, had another minority-focused film, uh, ended up having about 3.5x multiplier legs. Um, you know, Cruella from this summer actually is up to a 4x leg just because of how good it is. Now, with a $75 million opening weekend domestically, at a 3x multiplier, that would just give us $225 million domestically, which would make it the first film post-pandemic to hit $200 million domestic. Uh, currently, Blackwood is looking like it'll cap out at about $185 million. Now, if we're lucky and can get a 3.5x multiplier like Black Panther or uh, even Guardians of the Galaxy, which I believe those two are the highest within the MCU, that gets us to 26.25 million US dollars. And if we're able to match a 4x multiplier like Cruella, that would get us to a cool $300 million, another milestone to break. And again, that does not include any international numbers. We'll talk about those a little bit later on. So obviously there's another elephant in the room. Uh, Black Widow, uh, as a point of comparison, uh, being that Black Widow had the premiere access hybrid release and Shang-Chi is theatrical only. There was a lot of discussion online about whether or not money was being left on the table by Disney by not releasing the film on premiere access on day and date. Anecdotally, while I have seen people who would not have gone, made the trek out uh, to theaters, uh, who especially made the trek out to theaters for this film, um, you, know, you know, because it was theatrical only, I've also anecdotally seen people who wish it were on uh, Disney Plus because they were not going to a theater no matter what um, because of the fears of the Delta variant. And so they're waiting until it comes out on Disney Plus in 45 days, whatever form that might take. 
Now, as we know, Disney gets to keep about 85 to 100% of premier access revenue as opposed to taking only 60% of theatrical releases. The downside of this is presumably that people who bought the film on premier access opening weekend uh, means that they will not go to see the film either on a repeat watch or for the first time in second weekend if the schedule didn't work out, uh, lowering the uh, you know lowering the, the theatrical legs of a film overall. Um, as an example, Black Widow in its opening weekend, after its opening weekend, dropped 68%, the second, the basically the worst second weekend drop in MCU history. So the question is, right, you know, will the amount of money that Disney gets to keep uh, from Premier Access uh, make up the lost revenue that Black Widow, you know, lost? And will and if Shang Chi had had a um, Premier Access, you know. With how would that have cut in the legs? Will the legs that Sanchi has now by not having premiere access outweigh the potential revenue it would have made by people by people who would have seen it uh, at home instead? Now, the, no. Now, you know, the implication again of this is that if the case is that Sanchi would have made more money via premiere access, Disney might very, you know, if it doesn't perform well in theaters, Disney might very well make the decision to keep Encanto and the Eternals, the next MCU film later this year, uh, on a hybrid premiere access release. And on the flip side, if Sanchi does very well, we may continue to see a theatrical only releases, uh, benefiting, of course, the uh, theater industry um, as well. Now, Black Widow has made $125 million globally via Premier Access as of mid-August, as found out in court filings for the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit. Assuming, like with the first weekend, a bit more than half came from domestic numbers, let's say about $65 million in total, um, which Disney takes about 90% of, um, add in the 60% of the estimated $185 million it's going to end up with theatrically, and that comes out to about $170 million that Disney would be taking home from domestic viewers of Black Widow. Dividing that by the 60% revenue share um, you know, that theaters take um, means that Sanchi uh, would need to gross 28 283 million dollars uh, or about a 3.77x multiplier that would be the highest ever I believe multiplier in MCU history um, though there were other factors at play now first off this 3.77x multiplier does not account for the fact that premier access means that other revenue streams such as VOD or other platform on other platforms not Disney plus is not no longer an option we don't know fully how sanctuary will come how sanctuary will come to Disney plus in 45 days whether it's another form of premier access or coming for free but those other VOD streams on say you know fandango AMC or you know Disney or or, or Amazon or or um, Apple or uh, Google Play um, um, you know, these different streams that Disney could have made money from um, would poten might potentially help uh, Sanchi's numbers. Uh, secondly, international revenue is also coming into play here, which I haven't calculated. Again, these are all just domestic numbers. Um, you know, it's, you know, this is especially difficult with, since I'm not as good as, at forecasting international numbers, especially with, with uh, Southeast Asia and Australia locked down. The elephant, of, of course, in the room with the, the elephant within the elephant when it comes to international numbers is China. Now, Black Widow seems to have been offered a you know, May release date, which Disney ended up passing on, which means it's unlikely they're going to get a release date in China. Um, however, Shang-Chi has been approved by the Chinese film censor boards, meaning while we don't know the release date yet, uh, rumors are that it will come out probably maybe the 23rd of September or so. Now, 
you know, while there is the question of is it, whether this film will be well accepted by Chinese audiences or not, um, and whether it treads the line that, you know, Crazy Rich Asians and The Farewell were not able to by leaning too hard on the Asian American stuff, why not, what, which would alienate the Chinese audiences, setting that question aside, which I have faith that it will perform well, um, you know, the fact is that Shang-Chi does not have a high-definition version of the film available on piracy sites from day one. Uh, if it had been uh, with Premier Access, that certainly regardless of how the Chinese box office would have you know, reacted to the uh, film, would have been a lower number had piracy been uh, an option via Premier Access since the culture of piracy within China uh, is much more prevalent than it is here in the States. Um, again, we can't really say how that would have ended up performing, um, you know, how Black Widow would have done in China because of this or not, right? Like, we can't really say that number. Um, so, you know, that, that, that's just another wrinkle in this equation. And of course, there is the question of what internal metrics that Disney had for success for these films. It's, again, unless you work at Disney and want to leak those to me, which you probably won't, uh, we're never going to really know that, right? You know, if Shang-Chi makes less absolutely than Black Widow does, but it exceeds its expectations more than Black Widow exceeds its expectations, which one is successful? The theatrical only overperforming Shang-Chi or the underperforming but higher absolute total Black Widow? That's just the call that Disney's going to have to make, which we are not going to be privy to that decision. You know, obviously, again, we won't know without running that experiment or getting those leaks. But, you know, that is, again, that is the kind of the discussion and the argument being had on an online spaces. So how will we know if shang is on track for that 3x or even that 4x multiplier? Well, we talked about this on the show before, but MCU films pre-pandemic dropped about 55% or so. Obviously, some consumer sentiment has shifted since then, and with F9, uh, you know, which was a theatrical-only release, dropping 67% versus Fast Saga films, you know, historically dropping about 60% pre-pandemic, we can estimate about a 5% or 5 to 6% increase in what you consider an average drop. So let's call that about 60% for MCU films. Now, there's some trickiness again with Sanchez numbers, since as a Labor Day weekend film, um, the Friday through Sunday numbers will be much higher compared to the normal weekend. So the drop to next week's normal weekend uh, will be much higher than it would in a normal to normal weekend. Um, however, Sankey does have good word of mouth, so let's say those two factors canceled each other out. Deadline is currently saying a 60% drop, you know, in line with the expected MCU drop post-pandemic, um, or about $30 million total next weekend. Now, that would, I think, basically match what it or hypothetically Black Widow would have made had it, you know, not ha had Premier Access had no effect on numbers and all of the excess dropped to 67% is just attributed to it being a bad film. Now, obviously, some of that comes to Premier Access, some of that's to the bad film. We don't know the exact attribution of that. Um, I think, though, if, it, if Sang-Chi drops similar to what that number, that 60% number would have been, there's still a lot of room for debate if, is it on the right side of the line, is it the wrong side of the line, and that conversation is going to be ignoring, right? On the other hand, if the second weekend drop of Sang-Chi is, say, 55% max, maybe 54, maybe 53, heck, if it gets down to 50%, um, I think you're in much more favorable position of theatrical exclusivity for the rest of the fall slate. You know, if it gets to Black Panther's 45% second weekend drop, that would be pretty legendary. And that's to say nothing if it's somehow able to match Free Guy's 35% drop in its second weekend. Highly unlikely given the uh, holiday weekend factor and all that, but stranger things have happened. 
Now, comparing to Black Widow, assuming Black Sanctuary dropped 60%, combining the first Friday to Monday numbers for both films and the second Friday to Sunday numbers, Sanctuary will be at $124 million versus Black Widow's $117 million, at least theatrically, only domestically. Uh, speak, speaking briefly on this international numbers, looking at only Friday to Sunday, um, since Labor Day being on September is an American construct, um, in 41 international markets, Sanctuary this weekend opened to $56.2 million, with which with the $75.5 million three-day opening domestic number gives it a total of $131.7 million. Uh, Monday numbers apparently were $5.5 million abroad, with in addition to the $19 million domestically, we're now past the $150 million mark worldwide. Uh, this compared to Black Widow's $79 million opening abroad uh, for $159 million global open over three days. Now, Sanxi opened to number one in all markets. It opened in including 7.7 in the UK, the largest weekend of the pandemic era yet, um, followed by 6.5 million in Korea, where uh, apparently anti-Chinese sentiment is keeping the sentiment of this film a little bit lower. Um, France has $4.3 million, Russia 3.2 million, uh, Japan $2.8 million at number one, which uh, opposed, as opposed to other Disney films that had a day and date release, um, actually had a lot of support from ex exhibitors over there. Um, and it, you know, it's the first Disney film to have number one in the country uh, since Star Wars opened in 2019. Uh, we also have the highest September opening in history for Hong Kong, as well as the second best pandemic opening in a number of countries, and such as Hong Kong, Taiwan, and India. Again, much of Southeast Asia and Australia being closed down. Uh, in China, still pending an actual release date, it currently has a 7.7 .7 on Duban versus 6.3 on Black Widow, which suggests you know it'll end up opening stronger there, uh, or well, 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 stronger than what Black would have made. Uh, Deadline is suggesting a 3.5x multiplier overseas, or, or about uh, $458 million total by the end of its run. Not sure if that's going to include China or not, um, but I would definitely put it into the top five of films for the year as it stands currently. Here's the hoping it can cross into that $500 million mark for 2020. Hollywood films alongside uh, F9. So yeah, that's Sanxi. That's kind of like this historic moment uh, in box office history. Um, hopefully, like I said at the top of the episode, uh, a moment for Asian American cinema and the future of what it might hold. Um, clearly, it's the biggest story this week, and there are a lot more ancillary effects we'll see down the line. Um, that said, let's quickly go through the rest of the top five. Uh, just looking at the three-day numbers here, not at the not including Monday. Uh, second place, we have The Candyman dropping 53% in the second weekend, making $10.3 million in 3,569 theaters for a per theater average of $2,886, running total of $38.8 million at $10.9 million abroad. That's a $49.7 million total for Candyman. In third place, we have Free Guy, which maintains a solid 32% drop in weekend four uh, for eight, or is it weekend three? I think it's weekend four, uh, for $8.8 .8 million in 3,886 theaters, per theater average 2,287. Running total domestic is $92 million, another $147 million abroad. Total, global total of $241.8 million, crossing the $200 million mark. Uh, fourth place for domestic goes to Jungle Cruise, dropping 20% stellar uh, in week six for $4 million in 3,075 theaters, per theater average of $1,303, running total of $105 million domestic, adding $87 million abroad, that's about $192 million globally. Rounding out the top five is Paw Patrol with a 40% drop in week three to $4 million in 2,176 theaters per theater average of 13.33 and a running total of $30 million. Globally, it's made $32 million for $62 million total to date. 
Now, outside the top five, we have a number of films dropping off in theater counts as they hit their third weekend. Night House dropped 1,200 theaters to The Protégé, lost at 1126. And I think it's an error on the numbers that The Reminiscence hasn't dropped any theaters since it dropped a whopping 92% in revenue in its third weekend, not even breaking six digits, making only $60,000. Black Widow did okay this weekend at ninth place, uh, basically making the exact same amount as last weekend, um, about $780,000, while losing $300 theaters down to only $750, or $750 theaters. Overall, total box office $111 million for the weekend over three days, suiting back up above $100 million mark. Notably, this is actually more than the $81 million from the first four-day week or three-day weekend of Memorial Day weekend, or I guess four-day for box office, um, which, you know, even when looking higher at COVID, which back then, COVID cases were not as high as they are now. Um, so it's a testament to the strength of the film that we're able to get people out of the home to see, th- see them in theaters here. Now, looking further back, last year uh, was the opening of Tenet uh, to $20 million, the lion's share of the $27 million opening week, a weekend that last year. So naturally, you know, it outperformed last year. Um, shout out to Tenet for trying to save the box office, ended up making $361 million globally by the end of it all. However, 2019 actually comes pretty interesting when you compare it to this year. So, you know, if you compare it to the 36th weekend of the year, sir, uh, it's up against It Chapter 2, opened at $91 million, had a total box office of $137 million. However, um, if you compare against the actual Labor Day weekend, um, this weekend actually beats the 2019 Labor Day weekend, which totaled only $91 million uh, in 2019 over the three-day weekend. Obviously, having a brand new release generally helps uh, the uh, weekends have higher numbers, and who knows, maybe we'll see more Labor Day releases from Disney in the future, um, but uh, you know, it's still kind of crazy to think that even for a brief moment, uh, we may be back to pre-pandemic numbers uh, somewhat for the box office. Now, there's not much box office nice to talk about internationally since it's still all about Shang-Chi. Uh, Malignant, which is coming out this coming weekend here in the States on HBO Max, opened abroad to $2.4 million abroad. Um, and Ontario, Canada will require vaccines to see theaters as well. Again, Australia, New Zealand, and Southeast Asia all locked down. Moving to China, Free Guy continues its run in its second weekend, taking first place with a stellar 23% drop uh, to $18.3 million this weekend, running total of $56.9 million over there. Uh, the Tomorrow War opened, uh, the Amazon you know, streaming film with Chris Pratt opened at number two over in China, $8 million in its first weekend. Uh, Raising Fury continues its run past the month-long normal timeline for films, uh, with uh, coming in third place with $6.2 million added to $176.5 million total. Uh, local sports film Zero to Hero comes in fourth with $1.7 million to start its run. And then Luca from Pixar brings home the top five with $1.3 million in its third weekend, running total of $12.9 million in China. Uh, one specific China headline that's interesting to keep an eye on, apparently they're going to be looking to prevent foreign stars from working in Chinese entertainment industry and may even exile some Chinese stars who appeared in foreign films or have foreign national nationality, including Jet Li and Liu Yufei, a.k.a. Mulan. Uh, they're still letting foreign films be into the fi- in, come into the into the country. Uh, they're just not letting foreign stars film in local films. Given the other announcement that they're banning effeminate men from working in the entertainment industry, probably to try to combat uh, Korea's growing influence via K-pop, uh, you definitely see China trying to clamp down on the cultural exports from the West. Okay, so this there's a lot of other news items to talk about. Uh, we're already at 33 minutes in, and you know. Since this episode is already coming out a day later, I wanted to, you know, you know, get Monday, Labor Day Monday totals here. Uh, we'll just talk about some movie dates moving forward and a couple other, you know, high-level stuff. 
Uh, first up, Sony, having been spooked by the Delta variant, had pushed Venom 2 back to October 15th off of the September 24th release date. Now, as we this, as we know, did clear things up for Sang to basically own it all September, but was a pretty tricky spot for uh, Venom being between... Um, uh, being between uh, No Time to Die uh, on October 8th and Dune on the on October 22nd, as well as competing against Halloween Kills on October 15th. After seeing how well Sangzi and Sangzi ended up performing, uh, Sony went back and moved Venom up to not up to 20, September 24th, but to October 1st. Now this still isn't super great since it is cutting its legs off with its second weekend competing against No Time to Die, the Bond film. But given that the first Venom film, you know, dropped 56% in its second weekend and only had 2.66x legs, uh, I don't think they are planning to make most to have long legs on this one in the first place. They're just trying to get as much of money as they can in the first weekend. Uh, they certainly aren't looking to move no time no way to die at this point um, with its December date um, tickets for Venom should be on sale as of this podcast going live or at the very least later today uh, also before Sanxi opened the Top Gun Maverick uh, moved from November 19th this year to May 27th in 2022 aka Memorial Day weekend this pushes Mission Impossible to September 30th 2022 off the original Memorial Day weekend date uh, they also moved Jackass Forever from October 22nd this year to February 4th next year uh, with that move Paramount actually has no more theatrical releases for 2021 with Paw Patrol having been their last one and with Paramount moving Top Gun from November 19th, Sony actually pushed Ghostbusters Afterlife a few weeks back from November 5th uh, to November 19th so as to avoid Marvel's The Eternals. And also, this isn't quite a new movie date, but in the UK, The Green Knight, uh, obviously based on Arthurian mythology, uh, is getting a theatrical run over there and a streaming deal on Amazon. Uh, also, a quick update to the Scarlett Johansson case. It looks like she had asked, according to the Wall Street Journal, uh, an $80 million bonus for a hypothetical $1.2 billion opening that the film would have made, uh, which obviously they said no to. And while I'm all about supporting creatives here, yeah, the film wasn't going to make $1.2 billion, potentially even in normal times uh, pre-pandemic. And in this, in the same article, it seems that the Russo brothers had been asked to come back to direct an uh, MCU film, but it looks like they're an impasse with negotiations. Uh, for similar reasons, the Scarlett Johansson case, they weren't sure about where it's going to end up releasing um, or how they would get paid if it were to go to streaming. Uh, and finally, we come to some numbers for just total box office. Uh, starting smaller, uh, the Conjuring film for this year ended its domestic run at $65.5 million, a 2.7x multiplier with $134 million abroad, or about $200 million total. Uh, it definitely beat its $40 million budget. And then The Quiet Place 2 also closes its domestic run at $160 million, or a 3.37x multiplier, very good multiplier. Uh, with $109 million abroad for a global total of $269 million, it also beat its $61 million budget. Now, in China, the summer, bo summer box office this year is the lowest it's been uh, in eight years, obviously excluding 2020, um, you know, for obvious reasons, um, at 7.38 billion yuan, or about 1.1 billion US dollars. Uh, this is partly due to the lack of films to distribute. Uh, meanwhile, Disney just hit 1.37 billion US dollars globally um, for the year, taking the title of highest grossing studio from Warner Brothers, which had 1.36 billion going into the weekend. Uh, with seven more films to release this year, um, I think Disney is trying to plan for $3 billion globally, especially if you can get the China releases. Um, now, granted, $3 billion is what Disney used to make uh, domestically, uh, but still, you know, uh, definitely props to Disney for getting that, 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 that win there, though 
potentially maybe not a surprise. And then finally, total box office for the year has hit 2.177 billion US dollars this weekend. That is significant because the total box office of 2020 was 2.103 billion US dollars. And so we've officially passed 2020's total with four months left to spare. Obviously, we won't get to the 11.3 billion dollars of 2019, but still progress. Now, Normally, I do my segment of what I've been watching and give my review on Shang-Chi and probably a bonus review on Amazon Cinderella, which I also watched. Um, That being said, it is pretty late right now and I still have to record the episode. So, you know, I think I'll save it for next week. Uh, Again, we don't have much box office news uh, next uh, in the next couple of weeks in terms of new films. Uh, We're just going to see how Shang-Chi's legs ends up holding out. Um, I'm actually going to be out of town through Monday this week on a family trip. So I'll be recording a little bit later in the week and you can expect a sort of episode on Wednesday. So again, I'll talk about Shang-Chi and Cinderella then, especially if I get the chance to go see it again in theaters with my family. Until then, though, uh, that has been a wrap for this episode. Uh, suit me ideas for what else I should cover via bo- email at boxofficewatchpodcast at zmo.com or on Twitter at BOWatchPodcast. You can find us on Spotify, iTunes, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe and leave a review, or at the very least, tell a fan that any of that helps. If you're feeling extra generous, consider supporting us on Patreon. That will help me make not only this show, but all the other podcasts I work on. Links to all of that will be in our show notes. Numbers used in the show come from dnumbers.com. Our intro and outro music come from Kevin MacLeod. You can find his stuff at competent.filmation.io. Editing and production is provided by Dinsaboy Media. Until next time, this has been the Box Office Watch Podcast. And remember, our watch goes on.